Good morning. Glad to have you in worship this morning. If you have a Bible handy, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to open to Genesis, the sixth chapter, verses one through eight. And to keep that handy there, we'll uh, be spending most of our time there. I think it's on page four in the Pew Bibles. Uh, if you need a Bible, go ahead and take a Pew Bible, put your name on it. It's yours. Keep it, take it home, bring it with you. Um, we have plenty of replacements, and when we run out of those, we'll put new ones in there. So those are for you there if you need Pew Bibles. Also, I want to direct you to the worship guide there where you can take notes on the inside of the bulletin. As we start here, I want to ask you to ask yourself this question. I'll say it a couple times. It's a little bit long, but I want you to ask yourself this question. Do I have? Do I, do you, do I have the truth of God and a love for Him coursing through my veins with such tangible passion? In other words, is the truth and love of God coursing through your veins so, so much that it's real to you in a way that means that at the end of a day, at the end of your day on any given day, when you realized you haven't spoken to Him or heard from Him through prayer and the Word, that you feel a loss. Let me ask that again. Do you have the truth of God and a love for Him coursing through your veins with such tangible passion that you feel lost if you haven't spoken to Him or heard from Him on any given day? Or, do I feel no such loss? Do I not feel a lack of connection and intimacy and walking with God at the end of any given day if I haven't spoken with Him or heard from Him in the Word? Do I feel no great loss if I get to the end of the day and I realize I haven't walked with God today? I think that's a crucial question for the follower of Jesus Christ. Do you feel that loss or not? It was said of Noah, who we'll spend a couple weeks on here, it was said of Noah that he walked with God. It's a phrase that means he had ongoing relationship and intimacy with God. It was said of Noah that he walked with God. And if you don't have that kind of loss at the end of any given day where you think to yourself, you know, I, I really I feel a loss because I haven't walked with God today. If you don't have that, perhaps it's time for some spiritual heart surgery. Historians aren't exactly sure who the first physician was who followed through on this thought. But this thought, this practice, revolutionized medicine. It was the willingness to cut into a corpse, to peel back the skin, to cut through the bone, and to actually examine the organs within that was the first crucial step in finding out how the human body really worked. And when they did start to to peel away that outer layer 
and to dissect body and to examine the inner workings of the human body. A thousand years of medical misconceptions were revealed and life-saving surgeries began to take place. I believe God gave us His Word and the church so that we can do something similar in our lives. What we do here is spiritual dissection. We work for and we prayed for and we lead in a way so that this church will be a place where the Holy Spirit cuts open hearts. And I pray that the Word of God will cut open lives and families and marriages in ways that they really need so that what will be revealed is what is really there. To cut open hearts to see sin that needs to be replaced with Christ's righteousness. This idea of spiritual dissection isn't made up by me. Hebrews 4.12 Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. That it pierces to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. That, that the Word of God discerns the intentions of the thoughts, the t- thoughts and intentions of the heart. Ezekiel 36 says that I will give you a new heart. Ezekiel 36:26. This is God talking. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit will I put within you. I will remove the heart of stone and I will replace it. I will put in its place a heart of flesh. In other words, God wants to replace sinful hearts. His project in the world is to replace sinful hearts, to do spiritual dissection with us. Replace them with moldable, pliable, soft hearts that are willing and ready to be changed by the Spirit of God. So I I want at the outset, especially for a couple weeks of Noah, where we see God's judgment on sin and the corresponding grace, I want us to think about this idea of spiritual surgery. Because, you see, what we do here, this interaction with us and the Word, isn't about simple answers, and it's not about quick fixes. I've said this the last couple of weeks, but I want to harp again today, because I think it's so pervasively true in ways that we, we really need to unpack in our lives. You see, this is not about simple fixes and, and quick answers, because we, we are addicted too easy. We're addicted to easy. And when it comes to our relationship with God, we can easily be like spiritual crack addicts who want short and sweet in a way that doesn't cost us much personally. And I think it's largely because we've spent our wad elsewhere in every sense of that term you can think of. Intellectually, spiritually, emotionally, financially, we have spent our wad elsewhere in our lives so that, so that when we come to our relationship with God, we don't have a whole lot of effort and time and money to give to walking with God. So I want us to get in the habit of expecting spiritual surgery to happen when we gather. 
to be in the habit of expecting that the Holy Spirit is going to convict us and, and to show us and to make us aware of those places in our lives where we still need to open up hearts to the, to the leading of God. Because, you know, we, we protect ourselves from that at every turn in various ways. So, so here in my preaching, you're not going to get three practical steps for getting along better or five ways to improve your marriage. There's, there's nothing inherently wrong with lists of practical steps. But friends, I think God calls us to strive for deeper and more invested and more fully integrated lives than sit and watch churchianity that demands an easy fix or a sound bite. That's not how God changes hearts. It's too big and too important a project for us to expect it to be easy. What God wants to do in our hearts is far more fundamental and deeper and more important than easy. Having nice little sound bites or practical platitudes in our heads is not the same as having a word-soaked heart. A word-soaked heart that personally and intimately loves God like Noah did. So becoming the real deal as a believer in Christ is going to have to be, have to be, regular engagement with the Word of God in our lives. And someone else to do it for us can only be the beginning. It can only be a foundation. And so today, what I think we want to do, and what I want to do in this service, week in and week out, is to lay ourselves bare before the Word of God so that the Holy Spirit can renew us and remake us and reshape us after His image and not ours. You see, the standard is His holiness, not our expectations. So don't buy into the external farce of keeping one's nose clean as a replacement for a heart that is shaped like God's. Don't stop short. Give in fully to the process of the Holy Spirit breaking you wide open. Let's pray. Father, we want you to do heart surgery. We want you to be God to us in a way that is intimate and personal. We want to be so fully integrated in our hearts and minds with your word that your truth seeps out from us. So when people squeeze us, what they get is Holy Spirit-led life and truth that we have experienced and that we know personally and intimately. Father, we ask that our time today would be fruitful toward that end, that you would continue to shape us and to make us into people whose hearts are ready and willing to go wherever you lead us. Lord, our sin is great. Our sin is far beyond what we will understand this side of heaven. And yet, Lord, we, we long to be people who have so clearly and intimately experienced your grace that is far greater than any sin we could commit. So, Lord, make of us walking testimonies. Make of us living parables so that our lives demonstrate that truth. And we ask that you would lay us bare before you to convict us of sin.
Amen. Well, today in, in Genesis 6, I think God wants to do some prep work. God is doing prep work on heart surgery for the whole world here in Genesis. He's exposing the sin of the world for what it is. Red-handed rebellion against the righteousness of God. And it is, of course, as we'll see here in just a second, it's a great amount of sin. It's an overwhelming amount of sin. It's a flood of sin. And he's exposing that, but he's also in the process making provision for his grace. Making provision, in fact, for hearts to be remade in his image and his likeness. That's his project. His project is to give us hearts that pump with the blood of his righteousness in and through us. First, though, we look at the heart of man that degenerates into sin in verses 1 through 5 of Genesis 6. I'll go ahead and read just the first couple uh, verses here. Let's dive into verses 1 and 2 of Genesis 6. It says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. We're going to camp out on these verses for just a second to remind ourselves of the context of Genesis. This word, this word multiply here in verse 1 when it says, when man began to multiply, it's a significant word here that reminds us of God's command back in 128. 128 is what we call the creation mandate. It's, it's God's mandate for the world. 128, where God uh, commands us to be fruitful and to multiply. And as we see here in 6.1, they are in fact at least multiplying in, in number. They're increasing in number. But a brief uh, clarification on this idea of multiplication. It's important to always, always remember that it isn't just Multiplication in the physical sense, though it includes biological multiplication, obviously. But biblical multiplication also carries with it the assumption that followers of God are, are making godliness, that they are growing in godliness. They're developing people who bear the image of God well. Genesis 2.15 is that important verse that reminds us that God put man in the garden. In fact, the word is God planted man in the garden. And he planted man to plant men. He planted man to plant people. It means that because of your work in the world where God planted you, more and more people will bear the image and the likeness of God. It has never been that God simply wanted more people but it's always been that he justifiably deserves and he demands all glory in the universe. And so his project and his purpose here is that image-bearing people will be a witness and a testament to that glory. Now I want to uh, apply this idea of multiplication to our congregation. Uh, a couple weeks ago I showed this in the second service. I want to show it again. This is our three C's process. And we talk about the three C's, of course, as our process of making disciples. Uh, but multiplication is not just something we tacked onto this model. It's not just something we thought of as a good idea. It's fully biblical because, because this idea of bearing image bearers is, is akin to what we call at the bottom making disciple makers. 
your goal, your purpose in life, your very existence from the beginning of creation was for you to make this process happen well, A, in your life, and B, in the lives of others. It's like parenting. It's like shepherding. It's like leading. You get to participate in this process as you are cultivating growth and communicating the gospel in other people's lives. So this, this line here that helps make these things happen is your personal investment in what happens in the body of Christ here. You get to make disciple makers. It's the reason you were made in the first place. So multiplication isn't just this idea of numbers of people, period. It's everything that is meant by godly and biblical growth. So as we see here in 6, 1, and 2, at least they're multiplying in in sheer numbers of people, but they're not doing so well with the image of God part. It says this. It says, When man began to multiply in the face of the land and and daughters were born to them, verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they, and they took as their wives any they chose. What they did is they, they twisted God's command to multiply into a command to make glory for themselves. They, they somehow rationalized it into an argument for making their own glory. Not that any of us ever have that problem, of course, but, but it says that the sons of God then saw that the daughters of man were attractive. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Now, it's not like all of a the sudden their eyes were opened and they suddenly began to notice that girls were cute as if they hadn't noticed that before. Girls had always been attractive. That's not the point. The point is that they were manipulating God's commands for their own purposes. And that's the way it came out. Now, now there's something cool in the text here that I want to point out in verse 2 that helps us understand uh, what is going on here. It helps us understand that something that God created as good and was used for his purposes was abused and twisted by mankind for his own purposes. Look at the sequence of what happens in verse 2. It says, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took. They saw they were attractive. They saw they were good a delight to the eyes, and they took. Now look back at 3.6 in Genesis. It shows us the same pattern in Adam and Eve's fall. In verse 6 of chapter 3, this says, When the woman saw, there's the first one, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. There's that same uh, progress, or at least regress, actually, into degeneration and sin. And we see that here back in 6.2, that same pattern in uh, chapter 6, verse 2. That the sons of God saw that they were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Something created good for God's purposes, that is the relationship of husband and wife, Something created as good for the process of multiplication became something about us. We saw that it was a delight to the eyes, that it, that it would fulfill our, our expectations, we thought, at least. And so we took something that God intends for good, our sin, 
makes for our purposes and for our glory. So Scripture is saying here in verses 1 and 2 that as the human population was increasing, God's intent of one man and one woman in marriage, whose purpose is to make imagers of God, that purpose was being usurped, was being turned around and twisted into man's own project of satisfying his desires. So God's response to this sin, this, this outward evidence of the heart of man, is hinted at, in verse 3, God's response is hinted at in verse 3 of chapter 6. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Verse 4, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. We'll look more at God's response in just a minute, but these verses here, there are numerous questions that arise in verses 1 to 4 that make these two or three verses here some of the most hotly debated verses in all of the Old Testament. Some of the questions that arise from these verses are, who are the sons of God in verse 2? 6-2, the sons of God saw the daughters were attractive. Who are the Nephilim in verse 4? the ones called the mighty men of old, the men of renown. What does the word abide or contend or put up with really mean since we've never seen the word anywhere else? Uh, Do the 120 years that's referred to there, does that refer to the shortening of the human lifespan after the flood or to the number of years the people had to repent until God would send judgment in the flood? Long story short, you can make yourself crazy with questions that have no definitive answer in Scripture. And in fact, will distract from what God wants to say, the main idea that you don't want to miss, which is this. Humans have further degenerated into sin. These examples are things that that people in Moses' day would have been aware of and, and seen. So he speaks of Nephilim because those people knew what that meant, but we don't exactly know. So the main idea is that the heart of man naturally degenerates into sin. In fact, we, we start to create methods of that kind of sin. We like to think otherwise. We like to pretend that, that looking good on the outside and even that moral uprightness will prove otherwise about us, but we are fooling ourselves, Scripture says. It's the deeper truth that the heart of man loves sin. And Moses is here reporting what that problem of sin looks like. Intermarriage between believers and unbelievers. Polygamy. Purpose is contrary to God's original purpose of one man and one woman to make image bearers. So by the time we reach verse 5, there is no longer any, any distinction, any difference between the people of God and the people of the world. You couldn't even really tell them apart, it tells us. So verse 5, the Lord saw this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We see here the heart 
of man. The heart of humanity. Broken open, laid bare before the holiness of God. The infinite contrast between perfect God and sinful mankind. If you're a circler at the... uh, yeah, circle there, uh, the words his heart toward the end of verse 5. Because we'll see in a minute the contrast between that concept in verse 5 and the heart of God in verse 7. This verse 6 here is a description of the heart of mankind. It says that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is sweeping language. Nothing here is, is missed. The witness of Scripture speaks clearly to the evil in the human heart. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. 2 Chronicles 6, 26 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Micah 7, 2-4 say, The godly has perished from the earth. There is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil, to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. The great man utters the evil desire of his soul and weave it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them, a thorn thorn hedge. Proverbs 28 says, Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. The Hebrew word for mind is the same as heart. Whoever trusts in his own heart is a fool, Scripture says. But we like to say, Oh, but that's the Old Testament. We're not under law anymore, but grace. True. But that's a limited understanding of the functions of law and grace. You see, we're saved by grace, but we are condemned by the law. The law that comes from the perfection of the heart of God. It's our transgression against that perfect standard of God's holiness from which we are saved. We are saved by grace from our inability to perfectly obey God's law. And the New Testament echoes this truth throughout. Romans 3.23 says that all, not some, have fallen short of the glory of God. It also says that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it's written, and this is a quote from the Psalms, none is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Mark 7 says, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Jesus himself says in Mark 10 and in Luke 18, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And 1 John tells us, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And his word is not in us. What this means 
is that it doesn't matter how much of a sinner you are or how much of a saint you think you are. You fundamentally stand in a place that is infinitely less than God's standard of perfect holiness. What this means is it doesn't matter how smart you are or aren't, how good-looking you are or aren't, how much money you have or haven't, how respectable, sophisticated, cool, not cool, ironic, sarcastic, your clothing, attitude, job, personality, family, or anything is. Bottom line, each one of us is infinitely ill-equipped to meet God's perfect standard of holiness. And you'd better lean in heavily on that reality because it is the only possible way for you to clearly understand how infinitely in need of a new heart you really are. It's the only way to understand how much greater God's grace is than our sin. And it's the only way for us to understand how much God's heart is broken and grieved at our rebellion against him. It is only in contrast to the selfishness and sinfulness of our hearts that God's heart prompts him to condescend across an otherwise impassable chasm to love and save us from our evil hearts. So I ask you, like Noah of old, like Moses wants us to ask here in Genesis, have you ever really believed that you are a sinner who deserved God's full wrath? Have you ever really believed that you are a sinner who deserved the full wrath of perfect, righteous God. Because I am increasingly convinced that the pews in America are filled with people who have never really believed they deserved God's wrath. We are too infatuated with our own external image to know that our hearts are broken. C.S. Lewis says, A world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world and might even be more difficult to save. The heart of man degenerates into sin. But it is the heart of God that brings judgment and grace. Verses 6 and 7 say, The Lord was sorry. The Lord said, 
I'm sorry, verse 6. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, verse 7, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So, so as the Lord looks upon the earth, in verse 6 here, and he finds, he finds rebellion and wickedness and hearts that are bent on their own purposes and building their, their own kingdoms. He looks at that and his heart is broken. It is grieved. He is full of sorrow. Circle the words, his heart, in that verse. And draw an arrow back to his heart in verse 5. Because between those two verses, 5 and 6, we see the contrast of the human heart and the heart of God. Scripture is clearly setting up this contrast. Whereas man plots evil in his heart, God's response is a wounded heart filled with pain. where it says the Lord was sorry that he had made man. This is, this is not the same regret that you and I feel when we realize that we've made a mistake. When we are sorry for something, what we mean is, I wish I'd not done that. That's what we mean when we talk about regret. But, but God doesn't make mistakes. So, so verse, six, verse 6 is not a picture of God wringing his hands over a, a bad decision. It's a picture of a God who is full of sorrow because of his own creation's wickedness. He is filled with sorrow because of the wickedness of mankind. It's like this. There may be times when we may do what is best and yet be sorrowful about having to do it. It's like, like parenting. It's like disciplining a child. We are sorry. We, we feel sorrow at having to discipline, but we know it's good and we know it's right, and so we do it. It's, it's similar to that. So, so though he is grieved with man's sin, he goes ahead and he disciplines with judgment. Verse 7 foretells the judgment in the flood that we'll talk about next week. It says that he will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things, birds of the heavens, I am sorry that I have made them. And then it all changes, verse 8. I love the beginning of this. But Noah, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This verse here is not about Noah being good and deserving the favor. But it's a statement about God's grace and his love and his mercy. Look closely at verse 8 for a second. It says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word translated favor is the same word for grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So it wasn't that Noah's righteousness deserved God's gracious response. This is important. It was God's grace as a natural response to the relationship Noah had with God. As a man who walked with God in intimacy. Noah had a heart like God's. Noah had the heart of God that grieved 
over his own sin and the sin he saw in the world. Is the same said of you and me. Is, is your heart grieved by your sin? If it's not, then it's time for heart surgery. You see, friend, we apprehend the heart of God, a heart of God that is grieved by sin when we place our faith in Christ's blood on the cross. You see, there are two options in life. Christ's blood is either on your hands or it's coursing through your heart. So do you, do you hear the voice of God in your heart? Is Christ's blood coursing through your veins like it was through Noah? Can you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit calling you to repent in the ways that you have not yet? I want to close with the story of a little baby. A little baby whose heart was regenerated by hearing cries of love. There was a woman named Karen who, who found that another baby was on the way. It was her second. And so she did what she could to help her, her three-year-old son, Michael, to prepare for the new sibling. They found out that the new baby would be a girl, and, and so day after day and, and night after night, little three-year-old Michael would sing to his sister on his mommy's tummy. He was building a bond of love with his little sister uh, before he even met her. And so the pregnancy progressed fairly normally until there were serious complications that arose during delivery. And this this mom, Karen, uh, found herself in hours and hours of labor and complications. And, and, And finally, after a long struggle, Michael's little sister was born, uh, but she was in serious condition, uh, in threat of of death. And so a, a, a siren howled in the night so that the ambulance could rush the infant to uh, the neonatal intensive care unit at St. Mary's in Knoxville, where they could handle the situation for this little baby. And so, so days began to, to go by, and, and the little girl got a little bit worse. And uh, a pediatrician had told the parents to prepare for the worst. So uh, this mom, Karen, and her husband uh, contacted a local cemetery about a, a burial plot, They'd even fixed up a a special room in their house for their new baby when they found that they had to plan for a funeral. So they visited the little baby. And three-year-old Michael, though, kept begging his parents to let him see his little sister. He kept begging, saying, I want to sing to her. I want to sing to her, he kept saying. So week two in intensive care looked as if a funeral would come before the week was over. But, but Michael kept nagging about singing to his little sister. But, of course, kids weren't allowed in the ICU, so Karen, the mom, decided to take little Michael, whether they liked it or not, marched him in, despite the pleas of the nurse and the doctors and So little three-year-old Michael put his voice next to little baby's ear and started to sing, You are my sunshine, my only sunshine, just like he had sung for days and days 
before the baby came. That little baby girl seemed to respond. True story, the pulse rate began to calm down and come steady. And mom said, keep on singing, Michael, keep on singing. Said the mom with tears in her eyes. And so Michael kept singing, you never know, dear, how much I love you. In his little three-year-old childlike voice. And Michael's little sister began to relax and rest and heal. And the day after went home. She's about to go to college now. Just graduated from a high school not too far from here. Because a little boy sang so that she could hear. Her heart heard that voice clearly and responded. Friends, does your heart, does your heart begin to race when the Spirit of God calls to you? Do you get to the end of a day when you haven't had communion with God and walked with Him in intimacy and you feel a loss? May we be people who lay ourselves bare before Jesus Christ so that the Holy Spirit can do heart surgery on us like He has to do for us to become the real deal who responds accordingly when He calls to us. Let's pray. Lord, we beg you to do heart surgery 